stories are the software of our lives. We as the humans, the hardware, need an upgrade of our spiritual software, our stories, our wisdom more than ever. Each of these episodes will be like a performance psychologist, philosopher, religious professor, and a monk walked into a bar and had a conversation. It's just me on this podcast because that's the weird conversation that's happening in my brain. I'll be drawing from other wisdom traditions, but each episode will be drawing from one main tradition, the Bible. I'll be drawing from 40 stories. And as I look at these 40 stories, I'll be distilling it down so that you can find the wisdom you need to help upgrade your story wherever you find yourself. The polycontemplative approach is not dedicated to any belief system or ideology. It's an invitation for all of us to pay attention to wisdom that's been passed down our way for thousands of years and learn from it in a new, fresh way today. Welcome to polycontemplative number three. This is my attempt at this project at just helping you extract the wisdom that's that's there as humans evolve and develop and as our consciousness upgrades what's it look like for us to not have to reinvent some things that we've already discovered and too often we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater so to speak because we don't know how to separate superstition from from wisdom and what we need so Today, rather than looking at a story, I want to look at a progression and a, and a trajectory. Because for me, when we understand this trajectory, we're not going to be so threatened by the way that uh, science upgrades our thinking, nor do we have to be threatened by the way that experiences can't always be reduced to something that's explained. See, for too often, we fight between these two, two polarities. You know, is, is science real? Or is the experience that is hard to describe, the ineffable, the mystical, is that real? And what happens when you have to choose between these two worldviews, you can't really pursue the wisdom that we're trying to articulate in this project. And again, I'm not trying to finish this conversation, I'm just starting it, but my suspicion is that there are a lot more people out there like me, the the polycontemplatives, the pecans, who want to draw from philosophy and religion and psychology and the practice of it as that all cooks together to be the kind of people who can upgrade according to scientific insight and breakthroughs. And they don't resist it, they cooperate with it, they embrace it, but they also know not everything can be reduced down to something that's uh, taking place in a lab experiment. But there's a both-and reality to this, that yes, dinosaurs evolved and died, and yes, there's so much to the universe that is beautiful as we think about the long arc of time and, and evolution, but yet there's also so much that's a mystery and unknowable. And we even find that mystery when we look at the the Bible. So for too often, what's happened is people pick sides and, and argue things and we forget that we can be both scientifically minded and open to new expansive experiences. So here's an example of that. And I want to use something from the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament it's referred to or the, in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, there's this book called Joshua. And this book is used, believe it or not, for a lot of terrible atrocities because this book records an instance or instances where the people are saying, basically the leaders, hey, God told us to kill these people, so that's what we're going to do. I mean, this has been used to implement a number of human horrors. The reason that I wanted to use these Bible stories through these 40 episodes is because, again, there's wisdom there, but it's so polluted. This is not a deconstructive product or project. I'm not trying to tear things down. 
I'm trying to get to the other side. So there's a simplicity when people read the Bible that can be very naive. There's a complexity when you start to understand the, the scholarship and the critical thinking and all that's happened. We're getting just a little bit of that today. And then there's another simplicity on the other side of that complexity where you get the wisdom again. And this has been referred to in, in different philosophical thinkers as, as a process of growth and development. So you look at the book of Joshua, and there was a time period when I taught as an adjunct religious professor, and I would use this as an example in class, helping them learn to think critically. I would show them, and we're not going to go through these today because that's not the point of this project, but all the different times a different result was recorded than what is actually stated. There are people that use the book of Joshua and say, God said to go into the promised land and kill the people there. What you've got to understand is, as, as a project, the Hebrew scriptures, they were going through editorial revisions. That's just a matter of, you know, that's a matter of scholarship. It's a scientific fact that, that editing happened. And and again, when I say that, there are people with one brain that are like, yeah, see, it's all made up. And there are other people with another brain that are like, oh, he must not believe in any of it. Hang on with me for this okay, episode especially. Um, but you look at Joshua, and, and there are instances where it's like, hey, God said, kill him. So we did. God said, drive him out. So we drove him out. Now, again, human consciousness is evolving. We're not yet at the point where this is that we would go, oh, this is not good behavior. We still don't do that worldwide, but you get the gist. However, there's not a cohesive, similar narrative in the book of Joshua. There are multiple accounts of God said, kill them all, and we did. God said, drive them out, and we did. But yet none of those happened. I mean, we know that they weren't all killed, or you don't have the later story of Goliath, who's like this tall figure who would have represented these people they were supposed to drive out. Not only that, but there are a couple of instances where in other parts of the Hebrew scriptures, where you see like them extending great compassion. At one point, the the good guys, and for those listening, I just did some air quotes there because again, it was editorialized to tell this story. The good guys are like, we got to kill them. And one of the prophets is like, no, no, that's not how we treat people. Hey, hey, we don't treat people that way. Feed him and send him home. So, A, you don't see a cohesive narrative in Joshua. B, Joshua and the books around it don't all fit the same message that we're going to enact this terrible violence because God said do it. Were there people that did that in the name of God and thought God told them to do that? Yeah, but that was where their imagination was at that point. But then you also see people who are like, no, 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 that's not how we treat people. So you see there, you see human consciousness evolving. It's not accepted standard yet, but you see it. And and I'm not even giving you the chapter and verse on all these because you can go research all that, right? That's not the point of this project. Go find it. Go check it out. That's what pecans, polycontemplatives go do. But I do want to take you to the New Testament, and I do want to give you a, a picture of how the same thing happened there. And it's completely overlooked all the time. And it's why I think we have such a distorted view of how religion grows and enhances us and even how Christianity has become, um, in many ways, you know, helpful to some still, but an aberration of what it could be. So 
to go on this little journey, we've got to go first to uh, a book called Acts. So Acts is in the New Testament. And I want to emphasize at this point that, and this is going to be weird for you to think about, Jesus actually didn't start a religion. Whatever you believe about Jesus, we're going to actually get into some of that uh, in some other episodes. So I'm not going to do that a ton now. But as an inspiring figure, as recorded, or even if you just believe that there was some kind of you know person claiming to be a Messiah, again, wherever you fall in the spectrum, I don't really care. Even if you believe all that's recorded, there was never an aim to start a specific religion. And this is um, forgotten. It seems so obvious, if you can remove your filters and look at this with a with a fresh set of eyes. But when you hear it, it sounds provocative. That wasn't the point. Actually, what was happening was, you know, you could think about it. It it was more than this, but it was like Judaism is being expanded, reformed, and opened up, made bigger. An example of this, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching a sermon, and then they find out that while he's preaching this sermon, other people get what's called like the Spirit. And the idea is, Oh, we, they're not out, but they're in. They're not out, but they're in. And this progresses to, to Acts chapter 10 because one of the key leaders, he's a disciple, his name's Peter. In his mind, he thinks there's an in and an out. So he's only eating with the Jewish you know, people that are following Jesus, the followers of the way, but not the Gentiles because there's an in and there's an out. He's even confronted by this with one of the other leaders, Paul. So Peter goes up and he takes this nap in Acts chapter 10, and he's hungry. Now, I want you to understand here, he's hungry and he's taking a nap. Mystical experiences happen when you are, they can happen anytime, but when you're in this state, right, where you're in between wake and sleep. And so he goes and lays down and he has a vision. And the vision is that everything is clean, that there's nothing unclean, that there's nothing that God has made that's unclean. And what Peter finds is this then, he's going to this person's house who he would have thought was out, but that person too is also in. Fast forward just a little bit in this movement, and there's a new guy on the scene. His name is Paul. And Paul is like really big on this idea that, hey, way more people are in than we thought. So he goes to the institution, the organized group of leaders, and is appealing for them to change because an institution had formed around this movement. And as this institution had formed around this movement, they were making requirements on who's in and who's out. You know, you can't really be in on this Jesus team unless you do some of the Jewish things that were being done. And Paul's like, no, 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 those things aren't necessary or essential anymore. And a real pivot moment happens because Peter actually speaks up and he's like, yeah, you know, it was hard for us. We're making it hard for them. This doesn't, this isn't essential. So the group of leaders decides on a few things that everybody's got to go do. Everybody's got to go do these things. And they're basic. You know, you read through it, you see it. Paul leaves that gathering and then he goes out to other churches and to some of those churches, he shares that message of all four, all four things they said. But to some churches, he's like, meh, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you do this. In fact, 
it was the issue of whether or not you eat meat sacrificed to idols. I know this is weird to get your mind around and hard to understand, so let me just break this down for you real quick. Back then, they would sacrifice meat to idols, and then you would sell it. And the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol was cheaper than buying a meat that wasn't sacrificed to an idol. Very simple. It's kind of like that there's like a, a, a KFC that's that's religious, and then there's this AFC, we'll call that American fried chicken instead of Kentucky fried chicken. And it uh it's it's not kosher, right? It's not it's been sacrificed to an idol. And so the KFC is more expensive and the AFC is cheaper, and there's a little bit of like, oh, we only eat KFC, we don't eat AFC. Well then this is a terrible example. I'm sorry I'm inflicting it upon you. So then uh, as these early Christians were gathering together, you know, some were like, I only eat KFC, right? And some were only like, some are eating AFC, and why does it matter? And these little factions are breaking out. And so what Paul did that was absolutely brilliant to bring the streams together was he just said, hey, so how about this? How about let's be the more mature person, and if it offends somebody, let's not do it. So I know it's going to cost you more money, but go ahead and and buy KFC, and let's eat that and not offend this weaker brother or sister, this person who's struggling with this, which is really fascinating to me, by the way, at so many levels, because so many people that adopt and adapt a message of Christianity, who which I would not identify with, uh, you know, hobby horse, my rights, my freedom, rather than saying, hey, what can I do that doesn't cause you to to stumble or struggle? Anyway, we could go down that path for a while. So he's, he's blending these two together. But as he's blending these two together, you do have some instances in some of the letters where he's like, listen, hey, in fact, in Romans um, 13 and 14, you have this beautiful progression where he's saying, look, don't call something unclean that's been called clean. Just this vision of, you know, that Peter had like in Acts 10. In other words, it's all good. It's everything's okay. Just everything in moderation. Don't let anything be your master. And he closes this whole progression with, hey, if it causes you to struggle, don't do it. In other words, if it doesn't cause you to struggle, it's okay. So he's not legalistically following the requirements set down from him, you know, for him in Acts 15. He's departing from the institution and creating a higher principle. Actually, I think for some of the weird stuff that Paul says, uh, we're going to talk about the canon in a minute and and some of the wild stuff that he's, I think, conjecturing sometimes, this was, I believe, his most brilliant move. It's how he brought these two streams together. The stream of Judaism that was converting to this place of believing uh, in this figure, person, Jesus, and these Gentiles that were doing that. He pulls them together by saying, hey, let's not offend the weaker brother. Oh, but by the way, really deep principle here. Hey, you know what? It's all clean. It's all good. Just don't do what causes you to stumble. Now, people that hear that are like, yeah, but everything you would do would hurt somebody else. And co-. Yeah, that's because we live in a, a global connected world. We're talking about in this time period, things being much more localized. You could, you could know a tribe of people relationally and you could think about them holistically and relationally so yeah it's a it's a different world in that regard now what do i think is the bigger idea that allowed paul to activate this deeper principle and wisdom here uh it's the most unknown verse that's hidden away and verse you know 
chapters and verses were added. Uh, canon was voted on. Let's talk about the canon for just a minute. Um, I'm going to go more into Jesus uh, in some of the other episodes, but you know there wasn't a complete consensus by the early voices on exactly how to think about who Jesus is. Not only that, there was definitely not an agreed consensus upon you know a formal specific set of books. You know, there's no Christian in the world that has the same number of books in their Bible as other major Christian groups. I mean, it's different between Catholic and Orthodox and the Protestants. I think it's the Egyptian or Ethiopian Orthodox Church that has more books in their Bible than anybody else. And a lot of the archaeological discoveries of the last, you know, 50, 40 years, I'm messing up some of my time frames, I'm sure. This is not my expertise or specialty. Uh, but a lot of this, the, the times that we thought, okay, yeah, there was this agreed upon canon, we, like I was a part of it. Uh, they came to find they came to find out that the canon was more diverse. It wouldn't have even been thought of as a canon. There were just these books that had a lot of frequency and usage, but there was much more variance uh, in in the local gatherings than they even thought in the 1850s, 1900s, as I've understood the archaeological history. Um, and so what you see is a, is a political gathering that's definitely enforced by this transition when Christians come to power in Rome and Roman political leadership that says they are now, you know, faith people or believers or followers of the way, all those kind of things, Christian, if you will, that got baptized, and I'm looking at you, Constantine, uh, they did a lot to spur, some would even say force, a conformity that just wasn't there. And, um, and so I have, you know, I have no problem extracting wisdom from ancient wisdom traditions and different texts and recordings. But here's my problem. When we think that all of that was this, you know, pure process, it just wasn't. Does that mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater? No, that's the whole polycontemplative project. It's how to extract the wisdom but still be discerning critical thinkers. It means, and we're going to close this episode with this, it means there are progressions of ideas bursting forth that it's not a fixed dynamic or fixed static reality, but it's dynamic. It's the book of Joshua and seeing all the different passages and going, yeah, but where was this story headed? And that's what we're doing with the New Testament. Where was this story headed? This story kept heading to a place that everybody we thought was out is actually in. And don't even get me started on what it means to read the story of David and Bathsheba now and to understand that, yeah, David was a violator, that, that this isn't some affair that he aggressively violated Bathsheba. Why? Because human consciousness advances. Does it, means we can't, does it mean we can't learn from David's story? No. Don't get me started on whatever your concept of hell might be. There are many different ways to read what's happening. What I can tell you is the progression of the movement is over and over. Hey, we thought they were out, but they're actually in. That's what's happening. Before you get the lockdown of the canon, but before you get, you know, some of these even fringe edges as a part of that canon, because again, even up to like 1500s, Martin Luther 
you know, didn't even agree on all the books that should be in the canon. It's, this is not a clean cut process. What you see is an overall projection or, or, or overall trajectory, I should say, of this progression of human consciousness. And there's a verse that I want to show you. And uh, I want to read it to you, I should say. And I'm not really going to do that a lot in this project, but except when it's necessary. And it's a wild one. It's uh, something that I've found to be really powerful. And to set you up for it, I just got to give you a little bit of the context. So in 1 Corinthians 3, and again, chapters and verses were added later, they're arguing over who to follow. And at one point, Paul says, hey, you know, stop arguing over who to follow because it's not about your human leader. Oh, do you see how that's built on episode two? <laughs> do you see how that's built on episode one? It's about your transformation, leaving shame, eating from the tree of life so that it transforms how you treat your community. How are you going to leave the shame? That's episode two. You find the voice. It's not about human leaders, right? What do we, what do, we do then if it's not about human leaders? Well, he says this, I'm going to read it to you. And this is verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 3. I think it's one of the most powerful three verses that I know of. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. Why? Because he says, all things are yours. Now, hold up right there. All things are yours. You're going through this project, and if and if you're not religious, you don't understand how much baggage people have associated with those terms. All things are yours. Oh, like, like prayer, praying the rosary, you know, Bible study, giving alms to the poor, um, you know, whatever. All the practices that you could think of, like that's what all things means. No. He says, all things are yours. Then he says this, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So they're arguing over who these leaders are to follow. And he says, hey, all things are yours. What do I mean by all things? He goes, all people are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Don't think like you own these people, like in a, in a negative slavery context. He's saying it's all yours. Well, what does he mean? It's all yours. Or the world. The word here, cosmos, or life, or death, or the present, or future. I know of two times in all of antiquity and all of wisdom tradition that are absolutely mind-blowing about their concept and understanding of, of what you could almost call an early indication of quantum physics. There's a 12th century Buddhist teacher who has like a 96-line poem, how you can't separate time from a person. It's a really deep, profound read. The only other place that I know of, and I'm sure they're out there, my point isn't to finish the conversation but start it, is this passage here. In antiquity, this is an amazing idea because he says this, all things are yours, the world or life or death or present or future. And then he goes on to say, and this is to that church that he's writing this letter to at that point, you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now, it's important that he uses the word Christ. And we're going to cover that in some other episodes. But the idea for the Greek people at that time was that there is this connection, the logos, that takes us to the bigger, which is God. And in the tradition of Christianity— and other religions, you just probably didn't hear this if you grew up in a Western context of Christianity. God has been understood to be both form and formless. In some traditions, it's called the apophatic and the cataphatic, that God can be defined by what God is, but what God isn't. Now, we're getting deep, and I know that, and so just hang with me for a minute. This is the yin, the yang. 
at one point Paul says, God will never be seen. Why? Because God is formless. At other points, he says, God is this. And he's talking about Jesus. So he's giving it a form. There's a form and a formlessness. And what takes us to the bigger picture, the formlessness, whatever that is, God, the bigger reality, it's a, it's a, it's a pathway, the logos. And the pathway is that everything is yours. This is the most abundant thinking I can imagine stating. It means whatever you lay in bed at night worried about that's not yet in your reality. It's it's all yours. Guys, I don't want to be so woo with this that we can't be concrete with it. I'm saying when I'm going to bed at night and I'm worried about something, it's because I'm perceiving a lack and I can wrap this idea around me like a blanket and go, wait, the world, the present, the future, the death, future death, it's all it's all already mine, not in a possessive way, but in the sense that I am an individual me and I have an identity beyond the roles and markers of my life, the relationships that I fulfill. You have an individual identity that is bigger than anything that you've ever conceived of before, that no part of you makes up the whole of you. You're more than your race and your gender and your sexuality. It's an ineffable thing that we're going to talk a lot about in this project, but you are also a part of the we. It's a me and a we. Some traditions focus on the we. Some traditions focus on the me. And in some rare instances, you get a glimpse like this verse where we see it's both. You see, if you grew up in a tradition of the we, you actually would be more likely to gravitate towards a tradition of the me. If you grow up in a tradition of the me, the individual, you'll be more likely to gravitate towards a tradition of the we. It's why you see people that come up out of the East that can embrace Christianity and people that come out out of Christianity embrace Eastern religion because they want to be whole. It's a both and. And look at what Paul is saying here. All things are yours. He's speaking to the individual, but he's also saying you're a part of all this. That if we could let this idea germinate, sit on our hearts and minds and start to sink in, we find out there's more. And what was powerful that the church had before they had a canon was their imagination. Now, I don't want to pretend to be a scholar that I'm not. I did complete a doctorate, what's called a doctor of ministry at a seminary. Uh, So you can think about there's the doctor of philosophy and the doctor of ministry. Those are kind of like the two terminal degrees in this field or world. And the doctor of ministry is like applied research. And so my research was around how how individual leaders transform, but I did a deep dive on this early church expression that happened before there was a text. And the research has shown they had an imaginative capacity to go within like Samuel laying down and saying, here I am, Lord, speak. So here's the thing. White papers don't change the world. Stories do. And that's why storytellers over and over, storytellers are the ones who change our society. And stories capture our imagination. See, I actually do think that a formal, organized text actually killed the imagination. I'm not one of those people who says we got to go back to the past. The glory days are always the best. No, we have to reimagine. We have to move forward. We embrace reality as it is. But I am saying that a lot of people can't get past their current structures of thinking in regards to their 
religious, philosophical, psychological, or spiritual experience because the text is their ceiling rather than the text being the pathway that opens them up to more. And for the kind of people this project's for, the pecans, the polycontemplatives, are the people who want to understand, like Nietzsche said, when society goes through a major disruption and we lose our ability to make meaning, and that's what happened with the current structure of Christianity at that time, he said, we're going to have millions of people die in world wars, which happened. But he said, if we can be aware, we're going to progress. We start out as camels. We have these beliefs and behaviors put on us. And if we progress, we become the lion. We reject. We, we don't just buy into what we've been told. And then we become the child. And in wonder and awe, we pick up the beliefs that can transform us. And I want to give you something in wonder and awe to pick up on. And we're going to close the episode with this progression and this understanding. See, I think if you've never thought about it up to this point, the invitation for you to step into wisdom is to have an abundant mindset. And I don't mean that in a, in a forced way. I mean that in a way of understanding all things are yours. Cosmos, life, death. And because we own the past and the present and the future, that we are beings who are connected to this moment and we are here now, we need a better vision for where we can go. And I want to point to the past and I want to point to the future. I want to point to the past and help you understand that you know, what Paul articulated when he said, these are the fruits of the Spirit, I think was a brilliant list. It actually, as a list, has shaped more than you know uh, in different profound thinkers that have transformed things. (laughs) Do your research on where, you know, lots of things people believe uh, about how personality typings work. You've got something beautiful here in this list. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then you've probably heard a translation, self-control. It's a bad interpretation. It means more to martial energy. Here's the big idea. If at the center of who you are, whatever you gravitate towards, a picture of the ideal human or a picture of God or both, whether you believe in God or not, it doesn't matter to me. If I can paint a more advanced picture, a better picture, a more beautiful picture than the one you're painting, let this list stretch you. See, if I can imagine a human or a God more loving, more joyful, more peaceful. Peaceful doesn't mean absence of problems. It means the strength to tackle the problems. Patience, as we try new things, we learn. Kindness, when we don't match up to our standards, we're still kind. Goodness, inherent goodness that reforms and changes the world gentleness, even when we want to be harsh to wake somebody up, faithfulness when we're loyal, even when they haven't been, and then that we're able to marshal our energy and focus them into our mission. If I can imagine a human who's more advanced in those than who you currently are, there's more growth for you. If I can imagine the sacred, the gods, God, more advanced than the one you're telling me about, then there's more. I want to give you a thought that I still can't get over, and I've been having it roll around in my head and heart for a number of years. If I can imagine the sacred more secure in the sacred's identity 
than the one you're telling me about. In other words, the one you're telling me about wants me to go kill people. That sounds like an insecure sacred. The one you're telling me about wants me to sequester off groups of people and tell them they've got to fulfill certain boxes to get in. That sounds like a more insecure sacred. However, if I can paint a picture in my mind, as far as my imagination will take me of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and loyalty, faithfulness and marshalling energy, generating and focusing into making a new reality occur. If I can imagine the sacred more than the one you're telling me about, your imagination has limited you. And now maybe your imagination has limited you because of the experiences in religion you've had, or maybe your imagination is limiting you because of the experiences that you've been trained to certain to think certain ways about the text. I don't know. All I know is this. There's no edge to this. There's no limitation to it. Imagine it again. Imagine it again. Imagine it today. Imagine it again tomorrow. Imagine it again tomorrow. Imagine it again the next day. There's more in front of us. And if we can see the progression, the trajectory here, then we can start to understand what it means in a big way to grasp. There's more. There's more. Hey, this is a wild one, a deep one. I hope it's challenged and stretched you. It's not about whether we agree or disagree. I just want to provoke some conversation, encourage some conversation, I should say. Thanks for being here. Peace. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode. Please feel free to rate and share the podcast with others. More importantly, I want to invite you to come to SightShift.com, S-I-G-H-T Shift.com. There, I'm obsessively focused on helping people with three problems. Number one, how to work on their worldview and make their own meaning. Number two, how to find their place in the world and move with a laser-focused mission. And number three, transcend status games and build the healthy community they want to be a part of. Through our platform of content, certified coaches, and community, we are transformational guides to help you find your wisdom. Join us at SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, Shift.com.